What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Bronx Attorney Broadcast. In this episode, I speak with Josh Gittleman. Josh was actually in my study group at St. John's, so we've known each other for quite some time now. Josh is a partner at DeToffel and Gittleman. He practices personal injury law, but also has a substantial employment law practice. In this episode, we talk about what it's like to change systems and processes and make partner at a small law firm. Enjoy. What's up, Josh? Thanks for taking some time out of your day to, uh, to talk to me. Hey, Will, th- thanks for having me on the pod. I love your setup. You got the mic going and everything. Yeah, thank you. Um, just by means of introduction, why don't you tell us a little about your background? Where'd you, where you come from? Where'd you go to school? Whatever you think's relevant. Absolutely. So I'll start a little bit at the top first. Uh, as you could probably guess, uh, I'm an attorney. Uh, St. John's here with, with Will, but if we're going to rewind just a, a bit more than that, uh, I'm a Long Island guy. Uh, I'm sure plenty of the people listening uh, are, are, are sick of us as it is. There's plenty of us running around here. So nothing too crazy about that. Suffolk County guy. Uh, there is some differences between the city and out there. You know, it's, it's not necessarily the sticks, but uh, it, it, it was some, some childhood. I, I was out just in Suffolk not that long ago. And mm-hmm. I guess I didn't know one of, you know, there's a thousand differences between the Suffolk County courts and the city courts, like little things like that, right? And so one of the attorneys there, I guess, I didn't know one of their really local rules. He called me a 212 attorney. And I was like, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But he, he threw that as an insult right away. So Long Island from the top. Uh, you know, and then after Long Island, I went to Buffalo. Uh, so stayed in New York the whole time. Uh, you know, finance and marketing background in Buffalo. And eventually transferred to uh, or changed to, you know, a, a law career with, with, with St. John's. Uh, uh, you know, all three years there, not too much playing, you know, you'd say there's pretty good guys out there for St. John's, right? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, n- non-biased uh, right, reaction, right. for sure. <laughs> so this this guy that called you a 212 attorney, was he trying to like insult you as being too city? Yeah, that's what I think it was. So, you know, out there, they pick their jury a slightly different way uh, with the cars and everything like that. And so I was doing it the way that, you know, you do it in Kingsmore. And uh-huh. so he was like, he was a nice guy, but he, he was teasing me about it because I was like, all right, let's go, you know, talk to the judge. And he was like, no, we just don't do it here that way. And mm-hmm. he was right, you know, but I just, you know, the little rules there. So he threw me a, he called me a 212 guy. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So what, uh, what brought you to St. John's Law School and, and how, what was your experience like there? Uh, St. John's was great. I mean, you know, the same kind of stuff that is uh, not so great about any law school, not so great about St. John's, you know, it's doing the work. Right. Uh, but overall, high quality people, I would say, and uh, I, I think you'd probably agree that Queens has a little bit about it where it tends to be down to earth people mm-hmm. uh, uh, compared to maybe some other schools. So, you know, I was up in Buffalo, which probably was pretty down to earth for undergrad, but uh, St. John's just had the, the right vibe. Uh, you know, I, at least I felt that way. Yeah, it wasn't as cutthroat as they, uh, some people say law school is. So that, yeah, that was besides nice. maybe one or two professors that, that, who, who will rena- remain unnamed. Yeah, uh, that, that were a little tough, right? Yeah, a little bit of a PTSD from that, but we really got to go into that. So did you, did you have any experience in law prior to St. John's, or is that, was that your first like, legal experience? So I did, uh, and, and almost 
doing somewhat similar stuff. So when I was in undergrad, uh, I kind of worked as a legal secretary or paralegal at a defense firm for, you know, personal injury, slip and falls. One of their larger clients was, uh, it was either Stop and Shop or ShopRite, uh, you know, one of those big supermarkets on Long Island. So uh, a flavor of what I do now, you know, it was the fence side, uh, which is very different uh, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think that, you know, similar for you, uh, I got the, the feeling for a lot of defense stuff. And I wouldn't say it pushed me to the, the plaintiff stuff, but it definitely, you know, got me thinking about what the other side is like. Yeah. I mean, it definitely pushed me. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing this. Right. Yeah. There's plenty of stuff that I was like, oh, this is really the structure that I want to be a part of this. And people have different opinions, but I feel like there's a lot more freedom on our side and you, you, you could build a little more. Yeah. It helps to work for the good guys too, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Instead yeah. of being, yeah. a, being a stormtrooper in uh, Darth Vader's army. I, I like to think, I haven't thought about it that way, <laughs> but I do like to think of it that way. That's good. Right, right up my alley. And then, so why don't you tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing now? Sure. Sure. So like I said, it was, especially when I first came to the field, um, all tend to be like, personal injury or medical malpractice. And after moving to the, my current firm, I've been here for three or four years now, at least half the practice, probably more, is employment discrimination. Mm-hmm. And what's your role uh, there? So I'm a partner there. Didn't start out that way, but I'm a partner there. Uh, and a lot of these cases, there's a wide range of them. You know, they, they're um, wage and hour cases, so people who are underpaid, whether it be overtime, not getting paid at all, some labor law violations. And then on the flip side of that, there's a lot of employment discrimination cases, which can be a bit of a, 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 a hot topic, as, as I think you're aware as well. Right. So did you, did you always know that you wanted to have an ownership interest in a law firm, or was that something that came about later on? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think it's a combination of things. So when I first got to the the firm I'm currently at, which is Toffel and Gittleman and Josh Gittleman, so um, I was still new to the field. And the way the firm was set up, it was on the the smaller side. Uh, I believe it was, you know, another two attorneys, the head guy, and me. And now it's it's just me and another attorney, and we're probably hiring another guy soon. And we have a, a paralegal and maybe another paralegal who is in and out. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the small firm, everything you do matters more. So I kind of got the feel, which I didn't have in a defense side firm, and I didn't have in a larger firm, that the more I do, the more I get good at what I'm doing, and the more... I can spend my time well in the firm, the more of a difference I made. And so, you know, I, I became a key piece in that, in that firm. And so I'm thinking to myself, how can I get more of a feeling like that? You know, making a difference. And, you know, yes, it's making a difference in my clients' lives, but it's also making a difference in what the firm looks like and the outcomes. Because it's hard in a bigger firm to see what your ripples are, you know, your waves. Who knows? And so... I guess that's kind of how it developed. I was like, okay, so what would be the next step if I'm pushing cases, if I'm settling cases, I'm learning, 
I'm, I'm, I'm la- allowing the firm to grow. How can I get more I don't know, of that feeling? I, I think that's kind of where it came from. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like that's in developing systems and processes or from having, you know, your hand in a little bit more of every different aspect of, of the firm? I think it's in both. And you'll have to tell me if you get this the same vibe, because mm-hmm. when I see something that doesn't doesn't work the way it should, whether it's just like an outdated process, doesn't take advantage of the technology we have, right? Uh, it doesn't streamline things. I just I like I can't help it but not try to fix it. You, you, right. get, you get that same kind of I, I, yeah. So that that's what it comes down to. I want I want to fix things. Because one, it makes my life easier. Two, mm-hmm. it makes everyone else's in the firm uh, uh, easier. Um, and when I can see that actually playing out, that, that, that's, that's a big thing. Uh, you, you, you know, uh, just to think of an example, um, when we do client intakes, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we might touch on this before for the employment cases. Right. And I don't know if I want to get too much into it now, but a big issue is that there's a huge discrepancy in what the law is and what the general public thinks the law is, what the protections are and what the general public thinks the protection are when it comes to employment and working. Mm. And sometimes that's because of the way that, you know, certain attorneys advertise certain words that are both legal terms, but then also widely used in the non-legal way. And so uh, an example of a streamlined process is having a document ready that in the plainest English you could possibly think of explains the law. So you have a, you have someone calling, they want to be signed up and you don't want to give a lecture every time someone calls, you know, you don't want to explain the very broad concepts because right. unless they have a decent understanding of law, it's really hard to shift through the facts to see if they have a case or not. You, mm-hmm. you They have to be doing some of the heavy lifting. You can't ask them everything about their life and then make a case. They got to know what you're looking for. Right, And so creating a document that explains in plainest of English what you're looking for is kind of one of those processes where I just couldn't help but help myself and help the firm. Yeah, and, and I know that we've discussed a lot about how the average person doesn't really understand what discrimination is and a lot of times confuses you know, uh, people who are just mean to them for discrimination. Um, and it's something funny that I saw recently was, uh, you know, Somebody explained it for, as in, can my boss fire me for having mustard on my shirt? And it's like, yeah, it's if that really upsets your boss, they could fire you for that. Right. It's 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 a, one of a million different things they can fire you for, and there's like a category of twenty five things they can't. Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah, so, do you right. feel like developing this, you know, step in the process has helped make your life easier? It's made my life easier it's made uh, the other attorney's life easier and i think sometimes it brings in in business because you help out someone even Mm -hmm. if even if they don't get signed up for a client signed up as a client you help out someone by explaining to them the law and most of them they come to their own conclusion about whether or not they have a case and they're happy that they helped it all you helped it all and then they go to their friends and now they have an understanding of the law that their friends don't have. And people love to share things that, you know, they know because, you know, people like to pass along the knowledge. And all of a sudden they're saying, okay, I didn't have a case. But my friend here 
is in the exact situation that was explained in your memo and that you went over with me. And so all of a sudden you're hearing from, uh, uh, you know, uh, from two, two, two degrees of different people, you're hearing from someone who has a case. So it works on a, on a bunch of different levels there. You know, you almost give, and you don't know if you're going to get back. Sometimes you do. And so you mentioned bringing in business. How, yeah. how have you gone about trying to bring, bring in business and, and have you seen any success so far? Yeah, so I think it's a lot of momentum and a lot of building relationships. So I've tried a, a couple of the advertising routes. Um, as far as if you have the capacity to take a lot of calls and listen to a lot of people, and there's a stage in a firm where you can do that, then a lot of what does work is, and it tends to be hiring an outside firm, just optimizing you know, the Google search engine uh, results for your law firm website. That helps what helps the, the law firm as a whole. So, and when I tell you that we went through uh, at the law firm, two or three different marketing firms before we found one that was actually willing to put in the time, we did. We I think we went to three or four. The first two or three, and you know, this is search engine optimization. They say they're going to do it. And then you look at the website, you look at like the, the metadata behind the website. They, they didn't change anything about it. Right. So when you finally find someone who's willing to do it and optimize it, you could look at their Google searches. And if you search Google local, my, my firm's now like three or four mm-hmm. down the list instead of the fourth page. So it's like the 54th firm there. And a lot of calls actually get generated that way. So those mm-hmm. come straight into the firm. Right. That's, that's kind of one section. And that that's tough because you're you're competing with some heavy hitters out there that are spending you know maybe ten thousand dollars a month on social media on uh, the SEO stuff. A- absolutely, absolutely, L- lots of big money there. I think that does help though to be on the Google local end of it because there's mm-hmm. you know if you search near me, it'll bring up the maps, right? As opposed to just trying to get your website to the top of someone searching employment attorney. But right. still, yeah, a huge heavy hitter. So you got to find some marketing firm who's probably willing to put in more time than they should. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, before you were at your current firm, you, you did you were at some other places beforehand. Was was being able to go into more of the business side of law? Did that play into your decision to to move at all, or uh, was it something else? Uh no, it, it really, it really didn't. Um, part of how the business end thing became more of a focus point for me is that there was more, I think, and, and again, only love for the, the, the firm I was at prior. There was a little more room for me to grow because the firm was at its earlier stage, the firm I'm at now. Because I, I came into the firm, I, it was already a somewhat established firm, but not to the extent where my first job out of law school where I, I spent a, a couple of years, uh, that was a, a very established firm. So they were at different uh, times in their, in their life cycle, different times in their life cycle. So do you enjoy practicing law more or do you enjoy the business of law more? I think it's got to be a mix because too much of either, you start pounding your, your head against the wall. Uh, you know, I, I, I think if anything, it's uh, it's better to kind of, uh, you know, move from one to the other, back and forth, back and forth. And I'm not talking about every five minutes, but uh, either every day or every couple hours, 
uh, that's the way you keep it fresh because if I'm just working on briefs, I'm just working on pushing cases, just doing conferences and, and arguments and prepping for trials, that's great. But the variety and I guess can give me a large, larger perspective of what the goal is, is the business end of things. Mm. It allows me to, okay, why am I pushing some of these cases so hard? Where does that get me? It gives me the mile high view that, you know, really helps. This episode of the Bronx Attorney Broadcast was brought to you by me, Will Ferrero. Uh, I'm an attorney in prior law right here in the Bronx, and we primarily practice in personal injury. However, we do also do a, a variety of areas of practice. So I can help you with just about any sort of legal issue that you might have. I'm admitted to practice both in New York and New Jersey. And if it's not something that I can personally help you with, I can connect you with someone in my network of attorneys who is best equipped to help you with your legal issue. You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at Bronx Attorney. You can send me an email, Ferrero at Prior Law, or call me at the office, 718-829-0222. And now back to the show. So has there been any unexpected challenges in transitioning from being just a lawyer to now you know, thinking about the business side of things as well? There's, there's absolutely been new frustrations that, that weren't there. So like anything, there's a learning curve to it. Um, part of it is the time management thing, because at least I think that the small, you know, boots on the ground kind of stuff of making sure that a case moves, whether it's doing things like pushing discovery, whether I'm doing discovery myself or someone else is in the office is drafting it, uh, whether it's uh, poking the other side, phone call after phone call to set up depositions, because as you know, they're not calling us into court all the time now. You, you right. got to like, you got to like almost bug people into, into moving forward yeah. with the case. The, the court's not holding our hand. So it's about how I spend my time because I can spend a lot of time trying to pick up new cases and a lot of my energy trying to pick up new cases and build the relationships with new clients. But if I'm not moving my other cases, then it's not gonna work out. And there's a huge lag, a huge lag between the work you put into your cases and most of the time, and when they actually turn into some sort of monetary value for you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you take if you take a two, three, four week break from pushing the cases on the ground level, then you're delaying, you know, a reward, money, verdict for four yeah. or five weeks. It's it's one and one, and so it's about how I'm going to spend my time. And I think that's one of the newest frustrations I've seen. Mm -hmm. And so, do you have any, you know, specific goals outlined for yourself or for your business, either that are short or long term? Uh, yeah. So it tends to be in the way we've th been thinking about it in my office. And it might not be the most productive way to do it, but we think about it as a, we set a monetary goal. And I'm not going to exactly put what that, that number is, yeah. but we want to move from a gross settlement of X amount to a gross settlement of Y amount. And per quarter or a year or yeah, something? Yeah, per quarter. Like we we, we mm -hmm. think about it per quarter. And again, you know, we have an idea what that end of year number is, but per quarter kind of keeps us down to earth because that keeps us focusing on cases that we think we can settle soon. Mm -hmm. So the last thing we want is a case sitting at the finish line. And all we got to do is make a couple calls and it'll eventually settle, or we got to get them to one IME and it'll settle. Right. And so if we're thinking about a short-term goal of a certain amount of money, 
we're looking at our cases and we're thinking, where can we make that money? And mm-hmm. we'll open up a case, we'll tear it apart and we'll figure out, okay, well, you know, uh, this, this case is great liability. Uh, our client uh, does have a lot of emotional damages, mm-hmm. but she needs some professional to look at her and substantiate those. And if we push that, then in five or six weeks, we'll have a report from a, phys- from a, from a treating psychologist or psychiatrist. And then it looks like a totally new case for an insurance company, and then they'll be willing to settle. And it doesn't take a crazy amount of my time, but it does take action. I have to call. I have to. So those smaller goals, in a lot of way, keep me focused on moving cases. Mm-hmm. And so, are you? Do you want to be more of a, a trial attorney, or do you want to be more of a, a office manager attorney? Do you have a preference? I I want to be able to do both very well. Now, is it going to come a certain point where I'm going to have to pick one or the other? I think most of the time that's true. I mean, I've seen at other firms where someone is basically the office manager, a very experienced attorney, and if they see a case that they really want to be engrossed in and they really think that this is the case where they could be helping, then they cherry pick the cases they want to work at. And I think that's a, 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 re- a reasonable goal as the firm continues to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, you know, eventually I might move into a more um, managerial position and I'm, I'm doing the mile high management of each case. Mm-hmm. And then if there's a case that needs kind of direct focus, that's when I would put on a different hat and move into that, that sector, whether it be trial, whether it be uh, a mediation or just settlement discussions you know, sort of a laser focusing on where my skill set might be needed. Is there, is there anything in particular that you've been doing to try to become more knowledgeable about the business of law or managing a law firm, or are you try, just going trial by fire? It's a combination. Um, so, you know, first off, the, the internet is the most amazing thing ever. Mm. And it's full, full of a lot of BS, but also a lot, full of a lot of a great management uh, and and even legal guidance because you know we're not exactly the first people to do this right and so everyone and at at one point you know they were all doing trial by trial by combat for for this kind of stuff but i try to take everything see what works there's a lot of nonsense you gotta just throw off the top and there's 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 no there's no way i've seen uh some people talk about how they've just hired a whole bunch of completely remote legal assistants who I couldn't even tell you exactly what they do. And I, I don't know if I'd be comfortable with that. You know, mm-hmm. I like to understand exactly what's going on. I don't need to micromanage, but to outsource everything besides just the core, core legal stuff and not even know people, that seems like advice I couldn't follow. But at the same time, I think that, you know, making everything digital to the, to the highest point possible, uh, you know, streamlining every process I could think of, uh, using the best, you know, organized organization uh, technology. That's something that the internet was just over and over and over again. And that's something to kind of pick up on. Mm-hmm. And how do you deal with being a young attorney? Because in this field, we're very much still in our infancy. Uh, and sometimes <laughs> clients can get hesitant when they when they see that their attorney's only, you know, 29, 30 years old. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's that's a real thing. What I will say, and and maybe you feel differently, it's very rarely the client who has uh, any doubts about the age situation. It tends to be the attorneys have, who have been practicing for forty years, and they see a new attorney, and you know, most of the, nine out of ten are very nice, but. It's that it's that last one who doesn't want to hear anything. When I'm talking about the clients, most of them have never been in this situation or any situation at all. And so they want someone who first is willing to, to listen. And that's, you know, huge points for anyone who's willing to listen, because I'm sure that plenty of other older attorneys who have been in this in this field for a long time. And it's probably not their fault. They've probably just, you know, after a while, this field will uh, you've heard it all. And so. You may not give everything as much time as really needed. Uh, but most of the time, the clients are kind of, you know, glued to me or you because we're, we're a goldmine of information. They've never been through this process anymore, and they feel out of their element. So you could be whatever age you want, but if you're feeling out of your element, if you're, if you're, this is something new, it could be something scary, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll, uh, they'll respect what you have to say. So I think that the clients, yeah, they'll see someone younger, and especially when I first came out of law school yeah. and would be like, oh, uh, you know, they, they, I'd have to tell them, otherwise they wouldn't know. Now they, now they assume. Yeah. Uh, so it's gotten easier in that sense, for sure. But they tend to respect the fact that you're listening and you have the information that can right, really help right. them. Yeah. I, I had a couple clients a few years ago that they were like, you're a lawyer? Are you sure? You're pretty young. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> and then after the intake, they were like, oh, okay, you know what you're talking about. I, I feel better now. <laughs> I'm like, right. That, that's, that's, that's 80, 90% of the battle that, you know, they got to just feel confident in you. Yeah. And uh, th- that gets you there. So then how do you deal with the, uh, the opposing counsel that may have been practicing in, in that jurisdiction for 40 years and tries to, to be a little bit of a bully with you? Oh boy, I, I don't know if a hundred percent there's an answer to that. Stick to your guns for sure. Uh, you know, most of the time, or pretty much every time, it's it's not personal, and they take jabs at everyone, mm-hmm. and it's their attitude towards the whole thing. And so, if if you show them most of the time that you're just rolling with the punches and you're not pretending, you know, people can yeah. tell when you're pretending to know things. So that that's never really worked for me. Just if you don't know something, do your best at it. People tend to respect that. Uh, but yeah, there, there's plenty of people out there, and they're in a vast, vast minority. But you know, they've been doing this forever, and even when the things change around them, they'll still they'll still insist that it's done a certain way. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I guess I guess a lot's changing now with with virtual court. You kind of uh, evening the playing field with those with those older attorneys. Uh, m- more than evening the playing field, because not only did the, we end up in the virtual court where everything's different, but they changed a lot of the local rules to adjust for that, and the way the conferences work, and the way the jury selection works, and so it's all a lot of it's new, right? And so it really even today, you know, they don't know, we don't know, but we know how to use the the a lot of the the Zoom functions a lot better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that sticks out from your legal career as as you know some of your best successes so far? Uh, I, I, what really sticks to me, and like I said, I do a lot of the employment discrimination cases. Mm-hmm. And with those cases, you can really build a case that's normally a, a five or six in value. 
And if you're really putting the time, you can make it like a, a nine or a 10. And with okay. those cases, things tend to be extra personal. Uh, someone lost their job because of discrimination or sexual harassment or, uh, you know, they were, they were unlawfully, wrongfully terminated. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just like when people have physical injuries, their world collapses and they're left kind of emotionally scarred. And so you tend to, when you're helping a client and you're really putting the time, really get to know them. And so if, when you, uh, whoever is working with them, or it's me or whatever it is, really pushes their case to the next tier where it should be. And a lot of firms won't put in the time to push it to the next tier. Uh, and, you know, the client doesn't always know that another attorney wouldn't push it to the next tier. But when you do, you know, you can see in the client the difference it makes in their lives. Because if you get mm-hmm. them a, an extra $70,000 because you spent a whole bunch of extra hours on the case, uh, it makes a huge difference. That that's really what what sticks me because the stories in these cases are you know uh, with a negative connotation riveting in the sense that you know it, it's uh it's the kind of behavior and dramatics that you, you hope only exist on TV. But you know these people have been through a lot, so that, those are the kind of things that that stick with you. And oftentimes those aren't the cases that you argue on appeal and win. Those aren't the cases that you bring to trial. A lot of times those are the cases that you make very strong in the beginning and you get all the groundwork done and they settle. And so there's no long story with it, you know, where we work for four years and then prevailed. It's that we worked for eight months and prevailed early. So we didn't have to drag it out for the next three years. So that's kind of really what sticks. Is there anything in particular that you do to increase it from that, you know, B level case to an A level case for you? Sure. So in those, employment discrimination cases specifically. Um, there's those two types of damages, right? There's, uh, or broadly, there's the two types of damages. There's other damages that the court really awards, but they tend to be lost wages and emotional distress. Now, emotional distress is where you really have a lot of room to make a case stronger. A lot of times when these people are wrongfully terminated or sexually harassed at work or or based on race harassed at work, there's a lot of emotional damage there. But mm-hmm. the only way that a judge or a jury uh, or, or opposing counsel or insurance companies making these, these valuations really take it seriously is if there's some sort of treatment with a mental health professional, so there's documentation, and then there's often needed a, a report, an analysis with diagnosis and shows causation. So the emotional distress that person is suffering, we have a professional that's able to analyze and say, yeah, the emotional stress came from the employment issue mm-hmm. and not from just the other stressors of life. Got it. And so that's kind of the uh, fungible, uh, the, the part that you can really make a difference is if you put the time in. You can make a, ca- a case from a, a class B to a class A. Gotcha. And it's often a tough subject to talk about with the clients because, you know, uh, eight out of 10 clients have never sought any sort of uh, mental health counseling mm-hmm. in their entire life, uh, gotcha. which is why often, you know, you get to know these people a little more because they'll open up to you when you start suggesting it. And so that that's. Uh, a big part of increasing the value of your, your employment discrimination cases. Mm-hmm. What would you say the most rewarding aspect of your job is? 
Oh, uh, if I could think of a specific thing, what, what comes generally. to mind? Yeah, generally, but what, what comes to mind is the look of relief when someone in the employment realm, at least, mm-hmm. when a case settles. So, it, and the only time I'm normally there for, because a lot of times it happens by phone, but in these mediations, right? So we're sitting around a conference room and back and forth all day with numbers. Mm-hmm. And the client's sitting there and, you know, it could be a seven hour process and they've right. been thinking about this lawsuit. It's been looming a little bit. And so when we kindly come to a number, a great number that they're happy with and we tell them, all right, we're done. Congratulations. They just not, they're not expecting that kind of relief when they hear that. And so you mm-hmm. can like visibly see that kind of relief that now they can give themselves more of a permission not to think about this whole incident in the past. Right, right, so right, that, right. That's That's a big thing. And so you almost see and you know it's not a cure money never is but you can see the stress kind of just leak out of them when mm-hmm. they hear that so that, that that's that's a nice little uh, you know cherry on top mm-hmm. and so what what kind of advice would you have to a young attorney who might be you know in a position where they're you know they're working at a firm they're kind of a cog in the machine and they want to make a transition to either opening their own law firm or going to one where you know, they might have some more say and they might have to, you know, they get some sort of ownership interest in return, um, you know, and they're thinking about making that leap. What would you say to somebody in that, in that position? Of course. So first thing that comes to mind is that not every job on every firm is going to have that opportunity. Uh, and someone could drive themselves crazy, you know, in a larger firm trying to make that opportunity exist. So if you're in a firm with 200 attorneys and you're trying to make it so that you're a partner in that firm, I don't know how far you're going to get. You might have to work your entire life to do that. And if you want it to happen sooner rather than later, you might have to go to a smaller firm. Because in a smaller firm, sort of what I was getting at earlier, you can make that big difference based on how you spend your time in the office. And so you get a little taste of it by working hard, doing the right things, pushing cases. And then, you know, if the time is right and you feel like you created that leverage by, you know, being a huge part of that firm, you can approach, you know, uh, whoever your supervisor is or your boss is and kind of feel the water for that kind of thing. I mean, especially in, in smaller firms, there's no hard and fast rules. There's a lot less norms. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a huge, you know, white shoe firm, you're not exactly going to walk up to a partner as a junior associate and be like, Hey, I think I'm ready to be a partner. Here. <laughs> it's not, not going to work. They're going to be like, all right, what's going on here? Either um, that or like, Hey, I'm thinking about shaking some stuff up. What do you think? Yeah. It's not going to, it's not going to get you anywhere. So if you're at a smaller firm where things are more flexible uh, and no, no one's going to, no one's going to probably, you know, give you too much uh, uh, shit for, trying to make things better most mm. of the time if you're at a, a healthy environment you know if you're in a healthy environment people want things to get better people want to make more money and so at the right place at a smaller firm you know if you're trying to do it from the inside and that's that's the way that i did it you know i didn't start off with something brand new which i'm sure is very very tough but i'm sure very doable uh you got to just kind of take the leap and speak about it which is the hard the hard thing to do but probably worth mm. it and so when you were still an associate, did you approach the, the owner 
of the law firm and, and, you know, say, you know, I'm thinking about changing up some processes or trying some new advertising schemes? Like, did you approach them with things like that? Yeah, bit by bit. So uh, luckily, uh, you know, the attorneys that I was working with were uh, sort of drawing it out of me in in many ways. Um, and so once they started doing a little bit, that's when I took the steering wheel and I was like, Hey, we need to try to change this and this, and, you know, not everything stuck. There were certain things that just didn't work because we didn't have the energy to put them in at that time, or we were extra busy at that time. It's something that we should try when we're less busy, if that Mm -hmm. ever happens. Or on the flip side, there were certain things that people just weren't ready to try. And it would have taken a lot more effort for them to learn the process than me because right. one, I probably created it. And two, you know, people come from different backgrounds and it's not how people work. And, you know, so uh, there's no harm. There shouldn't be harm in a healthy environment, a healthy law firm in bringing up what you think are positive changes and ban them around. It's, just, it's, it's kind of worth that risk and looking for that environment. Mm-hmm. Is there, is there anything else that, that you'd like to share that we didn't touch on already? Um, not, not, not a huge amount. Uh, one last thing that I want to just, just, you know, uh, clear up. Uh, and, you know, when it comes to the employment stuff, and we get these calls all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, like, this is like a main sticking thing. And this will help any attorney who's dealing in employment, uh, you know, have that memo that you can explain the law to because the, the, the call we get over and over again is that uh, the caller was wrongfully terminated. Right. And that term wrongfully terminated is kind of a loaded term because wrong, right and wrong, you know, they're closely used. They're not, they're not a legal term. Mm-hmm. And it's not the same thing as unlawfully terminated. Okay. So become good at explaining that to clients and create mm-hmm. shortcuts shortcuts because unless it's uh, discrimination for a certain category of mutable trait like race or a whistleblower uh, like you said it might be wrong for them to fire uh, an employee because they got mustard on their shirt and that that boss just hates mustard yeah, yeah, yeah. you know but this this crazy guy who hates mustard but it's not it's not illegal <laughs> it's wrong it's not illegal yeah. unfair is not illegal wrong is not illegal and so and that's kind of where i ended you know just make sure keep the mustard off the shirt. Yeah. And I think that's good for any attorney to know so that, you know, they can, you know, if, if they're a real estate firm and one of their clients mentions something that happened, it's good to be able to sniff out a, uh, a, a good case, right? Absolutely. And that way they Absolutely. can send them over to you. Right. We'll take care of them. We'll explain the law to them and, you know, we'll, we'll take good care of everyone. And so, you know, if somebody is uh, discriminated against or, you know, if they're in an accident and for whatever reason, they don't want to call me, where can they find you? Oh, they can find me at toplawandgittleman.com or they can email me directly at joshua at ddtlaw.com. That's delta delta tango law.com. All right, Josh. Thanks a lot. Nice talking to you. Yep. Thanks for having me on the pod. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bronx Attorney Broadcast. Please like, review, and subscribe so we can help the channel continue to grow. And if you're interested in connecting with any of the guests, please let me know and I'd be happy to make the introduction.